All right, we're back in the studio. Uh, welcome, ladies and gentlemen, talking about the nature of reality. Uh, what do quantum physics experiments tell us about the nature of reality? That's right. We're going to go there. We're going to go a little QM today. Uh, don't get scared because I'm going to explain it. Uh, now, quantum physics experiments, they suggest that the presence or absence of data is responsible for the manifestation of matter as we know it. Before we have data on an elementary particle, it cannot be said to exist in any real way. It exists in all possible states as a wave of probability. However, that's just a mathematical construct and has no definite existence in space and time that we know of. The particle or photon manifests particular characteristics and a specific location only when it is observed, when we have information about it. Data could be collected, it could be observed with the eyes and the brain or a device that we have created. But if there is no data, if there is no observation, the particle or photon cannot be said to exist in any meaningful way. The particle is not, quote, rendered, to use a video game term, until it is observed. So I want to unpack this, but first, uh, physicists will pop a nut, or maybe an ovary, when non-physicists try to commandeer their results to try and fit some new agey concept, okay? So the experimental results themselves, though, are easy to understand. The hard part for physicists as well as laymen is to interpret those results to figure out what those results mean about reality. That's because uh, the experimental results themselves don't make sense to our conventional understanding and experience of reality. So I'm just going to lay out the experimental results and give you my interpretation of what that implies about reality. You may have a different interpretation, and that's fine. I'd love to hear about it in the comments. So if you're listening on Spotify, this might be tough if you don't have the visuals. But if you want, just go to my YouTube, Mystic Dan on YouTube, and you can see the visuals or a, a number of great videos explaining what we're going to be talking about, the double slit experiment and the delayed quantum choice double slit experiment. So let's start with the double slitte, the double slitte experiment. Now, this experiment is the most famous experiment in physics, in quantum physics, and it's the double slit experiment. So you have a screen with two slits. You shine light through that screen. Now the light, you would, you know, logically conclude it can go through the top slit or the bottom slit. Makes sense, right? goes through one slit or the other. But no, that's not actually what happens. So if you shine light through the slits and you have a detector screen to detect where the light hits on the other side, what you find is that you see a, what's called a wave interference pattern. And so basically what the each photon of light is doing is splitting itself. It's a wave it's splitting itself and going through both slits at the same time. And then on the detector screen, you will see a speck of light where 
either um, a peak of the wave meets another peak of the wave or a trough of the wave meets another trough of the wave you know they amplify each other and you might see a speck of light there it could be from one end of the screen to the other you probabilistically you're going to see more specks near the slits on the back of the screen but you're going to see some you know that are on the edges of the screen as well however where a peak meets a trough the waves cancel each other out and so you won't see any um, light hitting the screen there uh, so what you see is you know these bands of light and dark from the edge of the screen to the other edge of the screen you see a little bit here and then uh, you know a dark spot where no light hits and then another band of light where it hits and then another dark spot and then another band all the way across the screen so basically what this is saying is that the um, photons were coming in as waves like spread out waves of possibility not discrete little packets of energy but spread out waves of possibility and only when it hits the detector screen behind it does it collapse and you know it's based on a probability distribution where it will collapse on the screen and be detected so the wave of the photon goes through both slits at the same time okay now what happens if you add a detector oh we're getting little we're getting a little feisty here we're gonna add some detectors to the slits we're gonna find out where that light goes through because you're pissing me off light right you can't be acting like a wave you're supposed to be a photon you're supposed to be here you're supposed to be like a little billiard ball so we're gonna we're gonna watch you wave when you go in we're gonna figure out which slit you're going in you can't be going through both slits no not in this reality you got to be going through one or the other that's how shit's supposed to work right all right so we add the detectors to the slits now we're gonna watch we're watching you we're gonna see where the light goes through this slit or that slit now when we add the detectors to the slits what we see is not this wave interference pattern but basically the opposite we see the light acting as discrete packets of energy going through one slit or the other and so we see on the detector screen behind it instead of this band of light spots all over the place from one end to the other we see two clumps of, two clumps of detections you know behind each slit as we would expect if material reality were particle based and this can be done with electrons too electrons we like to think are like elementary particles okay so you can do electrons they'll show the wave interference pattern but if you add detectors they'll show two, uh, a clump pattern two clumps behind each slit uh, so basically when we're when we're detecting when we're gathering information about which slit they went through then they act as discrete particles that just go through one slit or the other and end up behind that slit now the problem so far is that we still don't know what's causing them to collapse from a wave of possibility to a discrete particle um, it could be that de the detectors at the slits are somehow interfering 
with the photons or electrons as they go through, right? To detect them, they're bouncing off some energy to detect them. And maybe that interferes with them, and that's what causes the collapse into a discrete particle located at one point in space and time. Now, luckily, experiments have been designed to eliminate detectors at the slits. We can, we can eliminate the detectors at the slits altogether and instead determine the which slit information indirectly uh, via which detector the particle eventually ends up at. So now we're going to talk about what's called the delayed choice quantum eraser experiment. And I'll show a picture of that on the screen. Now again, this might look complicated, but I'm, I hope I'm going to explain it in an easy to understand manner. So, so in this experiment, they shine light through the two slits and directly behind the slits is a barium borate crystal. And what that does is it splits the photon of light into two entangled photons. Now, if you know anything about entanglement, you will know that basically if a photon is entangled, if we know information about one of the photons, then we know information about its entangled partner. So if one of the, they have complementary attributes. So if, if one of the, if one of the entangled photons has a horizontal polarization, then we know the other one has a vertical polarization, okay? So basically, you can think of these as two photons that are individual yet connected. Now, one of the photons, if you can see in the picture, will always go to detector zero, regardless of top slit or bottom slit. If it goes to either one, one of the photons is going to go to detector zero, whereas the other entangled pair is going to go through this little maze of beam splitters and reflecting mirrors. Now, a beam splitter means that it has a 50-50% chance of going through, straight through the beam splitter, or being deflected off of it in another direction. And then the reflecting mirror would just be reflecting the light so that it bounces off of it in a certain direction. So the, uh, the entangled uh, pair goes through this little maze of beam splitters and reflecting mirrors to end at end up at either detectors one two three or four now the experiment is set up so that if a, a particle or photon comes through the first slit the top slit it could end up at detector one two or four but if it comes from the bottom slit, it could end up at detector one, two, or three. So if it ends up at detector three, we know it came from the bottom slit because only a photon from the bottom slit could end up at detector three. Whereas if it, if it goes in detector four, we know it came from the top slit because only a photon from the top slit can end up at detector four. But detectors one and two, we don't know because 
uh, a photon from either slit could end up at detectors one or two. So of course at detectors uh, one or two, we get an interference pattern uh, because we don't know which slit the photon came through. But at detectors three and four, we get you know, the particulate pattern, the two lines behind the slits as if the photon was traveling as a discrete packet of energy instead of a wave. And I mean, the real kicker here is that if we know which slit the entangled photon came through, then of course we know which slit its entangled cousin came through to arrive at D0. However, the entangled cousin that always goes to D0 does so before the other photon arrives at detectors one through four. So we kind of have a back in time collapse where uh, we can check the detector D0 and if its entangled partner went to D3 or D4, we get a particular pattern, uh, a particle pattern. But if its entangled partner went to D1 or D2, we get a wave interference pattern at D0. <clears throat> so it's kind of affecting the collapse back in time of whether or not the photon acts as a discrete packet of light or a spread out wave of possibility. Okay, so that may have been a little complicated, but like I said, there are plenty of good videos explaining it online. And the point is that it's the mere presence or record of information about which slit the photon went through that collapses the wave function. We know for an absolute fact that nothing in the experimental setup caused the collapse. Okay, there's no detector at the slits interfering with the photons. The photons are going through the beam splitters and or the reflecting mirrors regardless of which detector they end up at. And the final detectors are all the same, just in different locations in the experimental setup. The only thing that could be causing the photon to act like a discrete packet of energy rather than a spread out wave of possibility is our knowledge about which slit it went through. Now, knowledge requires a knower. And the question is, why should the fundamental particles of physics act differently, indeed manifest, depending on whether or not we have data about them? The indirectly obtained which slit information from detectors three and four from the experiment I described should be completely irrelevant to how a physical particle behaves. Logically, since it's not being interfered with by some detector at the slits, and it's going through beam slitters and or reflecting mirrors regardless of which detector it ends up at, we should see the same pattern, wave or particulate, at all detectors. But we don't, and the only thing that changes is knowledge of which slit it went through. That which slit knowledge has absolutely no relevance except to a mind. Now this tells us that we live in an information-based reality. Now we're collecting information all the time via our senses, our sense of touch, our sense of sight, our sense of smell. We're collecting information 
also collecting information via devices like cameras, audio recorders. And what quantum mechanics tells us, in my opinion, is that reality manifests, becomes real, a particle at one point in space and time, when we have information about it, when we're looking or when we're recording. Otherwise, it exists as this mysterious cloud of possibility, this wave function. Okay, so now let's leave the physics behind and let's really go off the deep end because that's what we're all about here, explaining it, what, what's going on here. So the question becomes, who or what is doing the rendering? Who is taking the light or the particles from this spread out wave that we can't say even really exists? You know, they say that the photon or the electron exists in all possible states until it is measured. Okay, so that's kind of like saying it doesn't really exist yet. It's not, quote, manifest in reality. So what, what, who is it that um, takes that possibility and renders it? Here's your particle at this point in space and time. Um, I believe the answer is consciousness of course. And as Einstein once quipped, uh, there must be something behind the energy. So I would say consciousness forms and informs matter. And this is like a virtual playground for consciousness. So this is kind of like a virtual world created by consciousness. It's the virtual world that we call physicality. And consciousness creates the rule set which governs reality, which governs this physical world. And these rules are embedded in each of our minds so that we experience an objective reality we can agree upon. But in the final anal analysis, it's all a data stream. It's all data coming into our senses, which we're projecting out as this external reality. You know, what I see as my monitor and computer screen, that's all data coming in and being processed by the brain. And then boom, an image I see outside of me based on all this informational data. And we can look no further to dreams than to see what's really going on. Incidentally, our brainwave activity during dreaming is very similar to the activity while we're awake. And this makes perfect sense because when we're dreaming, we're simply in another virtual world. Now, of course, that dream virtual world has a different rule set and uh, doesn't last near as long. There are differences in the dream world, but that has nothing to do with the main point here. The main point is that in both cases, a stream of data is flowing through the brain causing us to project this three-dimensional space around us and experience as the data stimulates all the objects that permeate that space. Now, this does not solve the mystery of consciousness. We're never going to solve that, my friends. Consciousness must, by its very nature, transcend the material virtual world it has created. Um, we're never going to locate consciousness in the material world. Um, you're never going to say, see, look, look, here's the microscope. Look under that microscope. We found consciousness. There it is. We found it. <laughs> look at it. No, that's ridiculous. We're never going to find consciousness 
in the material world because consciousness is nowhere and everywhere. Well, it's kind of like the the elementary particles we talked about in the wave superposition. It's everywhere and nowhere. It's somewhere in this wave. Okay. Did I just figure something out? No, I don't think so. But that is interesting that, um, you know, particles before they manifest are kind of everywhere and nowhere in this wave of possibility. Now, I do like the panpsychic view, though. Um, the panpsychic view that all things, all of material reality has an experiential or conscious component. In other words, it's perfectly reasonable to ask the question, what is it like to be an electron? What does it feel like to be an electron? An electron is not just a material particle, it's also conscious and there's an experience associated with it. It's kind of like saying, what is it like to be a rock? There's some experience of being a rock. Now, why, why is this view not just ridiculously donkey ass crazy? Okay. So the view draws and intrigues me because of reports in the transpersonal psychological literature, uh, which I've dabbled in my old job. Uh, the transpersonal psychological literature. I have read a couple books. And in one of Stanislav Grof's books, he told of one patient who experienced being a sperm cell traveling towards the egg inside the woman, uh, traveling to fertilize the woman's egg. And there was an actual experience. He felt like he was the sperm cell in this transpersonal visionary experience. And it's easy to call that just all imagination. I get that. But it does make sense on some level because if consciousness creates reality and pervades it, then all things are available to conscious experience. And this is based on the view that consciousness is all. Okay, this is the mystical view. Consciousness is all. Everything there is is a part of consciousness. How could you not feel then or experience a part of yourself? Well, I can tell you my leg goes numb and I can't feel it anymore when I sit on the toilet. So there is a possibility of not being able to consciously feel part of yourself. Okay, get out of here with your mind-body problems. Anyway, anyway, under the panpsychic view, consciousness experiences its material creations like the body and the brain. However, consciousness is not the brain. It's not generated by the brain. It's the other way around. Consciousness generates the brain, which it then experiences through, of course, while the brain is functioning. You shoot yourself in the head and no more functioning brain. Consciousness disconnects from that brain. Um, thus, we can each be players embedded in the actual game world, in the actual virtual world, we're embedded. We are experiencing in that world as opposed to how we play games today where we just see it on a screen. We see and make commands to the game player on the screen, but we're not actually inside the game player experiencing. So this is like VR to the next level. It's pretty exciting. 
So we as localized aspects of consciousness, we're part of this greater consciousness field. You can think of consciousness as an ocean. We are little drops in the ocean. My consciousness is a drop in the greater ocean. Of course, <coughs> excuse me, I am one with the ocean. I am the ocean. But I'm kind of like a little separated off piece right now living in the virtual world. Okay, so we're localized aspects of consciousness in this material world. We're making decisions to raise an arm, to talk, to walk through a door, whatever it is. And the larger consciousness of which we are a part of computes the consequences and renders the reality around us accordingly. Either that or it feeds us the data to render it ourselves. I mean, one theory, I mean, there's two ways you can look at it, really. There's two ways you can look at it. You can look at it as the larger consciousness is rendering the reality around you. And you're just making decisions in your body and then the larger consciousness is computing how that's going to affect reality and, and manifesting it for you. Or you could say that, you know, the larger consciousness is feeding reality as a data stream and you're actually projecting it out into space. Okay. And if you're interested in this idea, I'd recommend checking out Tom Campbell. He is a former physicist and now big uh, consciousness uh, researcher, I guess, author of My Big Toe. He speaks a lot about this virtual world concept. So that world around us that we see is ultimately illusory. I mean, just like the dream world is illusory. When we're dreaming, we see a world around us. We're in a, some kind of space when we're dreaming. But then we think that's illusory. That's not really real. That's a construct of the mind. Well, this world as well. And that's some hard shit to wrap your head around because it's totally counterintuitive because, God damn it, this table is in front of me. It's out there. It's, it's not in here. It's not in here. It's out there. The sun that I see, I perfectly believe that it has sent its light through the solar system to impinge upon my eyes. And then my brain interprets that as the sun. So the sun seems to be out there and light is actually traveling through space to get to my eyes. It's not that I'm projecting the sun out there. Bullshit. Get the fuck out of here. What are you talking about? And so it seems, well, what about the dream world? Is the sun really out there? Is that space really there? It's ultimately, it's ultimately illus illusory. I mean, it is out there. But it's also in here, in the mind. It's out there to us because we are localized aspects of the larger source consciousness embedded in this projected world. And source consciousness renders the world as needed based on our observations and collected data. So to us, the world is out there while we're in the simulation, so to speak. But if we could raise our awareness to that source consciousness of which we are really one with, we would see that reality is really just an inner projection. But alas, I mean, limited to our brain-based perception and knowledge, 
we can never fully grasp these concepts and understand reality for what it truly is. The only way to truly know is to elevate consciousness, go back into the ocean of the source and experience from that point of view, which can be done through near-death experiences, can be done through DMT in some instances. And only then will we really know and experience all things as being part of ourselves and all reality for what it truly is. So that's all I have for you today. Make sure to subscribe to the YouTuber and get on Spotify, Paranormal and the Nature of Reality. Search Spotify, YouTube, Mystic Dan, of course, and my blog, mysticdan.com. Don't forget to subscribe and uh, hit that like button. And I will see you again someday.